It's been a while since I've spoken, and I hope you remember that we were in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 6, and we've been looking at this subject of slavery for a number of weeks, actually trying to put these verses in the proper biblical and historical perspective. We saw that Paul's great concern was the advancement of the gospel. No matter what situation uh, a Christian finds themselves in, this should be their great concern. And this is why he instructed the, the slaves to uh, act in a certain way so that the gospel could be advanced, so that the doctrine could be adorned, the doctrine of Christ could be adorned in that situation there. Now, we, we don't have time, or I don't think it would be wise to go, try to go back through and review all that we've said. Uh, if you're interested, if you haven't uh, been here and interested in knowing what I think is the correct biblical perspective on these verses, you just have to go back and listen to those messages. The, the one thing I would say is that uh, it's obvious from the New Testament that Paul was not making any direct effort to overturn the institution of slavery at that time. But it's also obvious from church history that the teachings of Christ and the other teachings in the New Testament did undermine the institution of slavery, and we brought that out. So um, that's, I think, enough of review on that. What I want to do this morning to begin with is to try to glean some truths from this uh, teaching related to slavery and masters in relationship to employer and employee relationships. That's often done uh, in the commentaries, and I think it's valid, although it's obvious that there's not a direct parallel between slavery and the employee-employer relationship, although sometimes we might feel that way. Uh, I think we can glean some general guidelines for the workplace. So what I'd like to do here is read these first two verses that we uh, have looked at and then read you some of the other verses in the New Testament. It's actually a very uh, prominent teaching in the New Testament, this subject of slaves and masters. Why would that be? Well, I think the main reason is there were a lot of slaves in the New Testament church. Some estimates say that maybe half of the New Testament church was made up of slaves. So it's uh, something that Paul felt strongly about as far as speaking or sharing what the proper view should be. Um, We don't find quite as many uh, verses related to the masters or what we would say the employer today. Uh, because there weren't as many masters in the church. Uh, There were some, and he has some teaching on that. But uh, what we'll do then is read these first two verses, and then I'm going to read some of the other verses in the New Testament related to this same subject. And as I'm reading these verses, uh, be thinking about how this applies in the work environment. Just have that thought in the back of your mind, even though he's talking about slaves and masters. Transpose that into the present-day situation and think of employer, employees. 
So let's begin here. Well, Paul says, let all those who are under the yoke, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, let all those who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who, are, who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because, of their, because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So that's uh, one section. If you want to turn quickly just a couple pages ahead to Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. <clears throat> I think what I'll do is just go ahead and read some of these others. You won't have to turn to them, but be thinking about how this applies. Slaves, this is Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things for them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Then Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. First Peter Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Do not, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. That's a significant one. Let me read that again. Servants, be submissive to their masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Uh, just a side note here, the word masters in many of these verses is actually the word we get our word despot from. Each man must, uh, well, this is 1 Corinthians 7.20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. 
Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. <clears throat> and then lastly, this is kind of a general one, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you were all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So those are some of the verses that... Uh, Paul has written and Peter in the New Testament. You can see it's a common it's a common theme. It's not just one isolated area. So I want to bring out a few things related to this uh, teaching and how it would apply to the employer employee situation today. And if if there's other things that come to mind and I don't mention them, maybe you can bring them up at the end of the message. <clears throat> First of all, I would say if you're an employer, you're to treat your workers with justice and fairness. You're to treat them well, provide a fair wage, knowing that you too have a employer, a master in heaven. I think the main thing that Paul would point out is that uh, for us today, in our situation, if you're an employer, you're accountable to God for how you deal with your employees. How would you want to be treated in that employee's position? You know, James has some pretty strong things to say about this. I just want to interject this here because... The Bible's pretty strong on this. Uh, <clears throat> James, in chapter 5, verse 4, says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your field. He's speaking to a master, an employer. Behold the pay, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. So you're accountable to God. That pay that should have been paid that wasn't paid that insufficient wage that you you uh, didn't give to your employee, that cries out to God. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabbath. So James tells us just what Paul has said in these other portions. You're accountable to God as an employer. You, you will be accountable for how you treat those that work under you. I think the basic <clears throat> biblical position is an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. I think that's a, a biblical concept, an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. So that's for the employer. But what about the employee? There's a lot, quite a bit more about that because there's more about the slave than the master. <clears throat> If you're an employee, you should do your work as unto the Lord. That comes out in so many of those verses. You're working for God in those situations. Do what you do at work for, the, for Christ. Do we go to work that way? With that mindset? 
realize that a good work ethic brings honor to God and can open doors for the gospel. I mean, you may not be able to quote Bible verses to your boss, but you can live the word of God before him by being honest and efficient and pleasant and cooperative at work. Perhaps the quality of your work and your character will cause your employer to inquire about the hope that's in you. So what I'm saying is, and I think this is what Paul is saying to those slaves, he says your attitude, your attitude at work, showing sincerity and respect is a means of rightly representing Christ in the workplace. To dishonor your supervisor will falsely depict Christians as as those who do not respect authority. Those who profess Christ and yet are insubordinate to their employers or are lazy are poor witnesses of the transforming power of God. I mean, we say that God changes our lives, but if we work just the way the other workers do with a half-hearted attitude, that doesn't speak of the transforming power of Christ in our lives. We should do quality work so that others will see that Christians are diligent, dedicated, thoughtful workers. Actually, work is part of your worship. We don't think about that. One man said that uh, worship is coextensive with life. That was Ravi Zacharias. Worship is coextensive with life. What's he saying? He's saying your life is your worship. Day in, day out, morning, noon, and night. That's your worship. That's what your worship is all about. It's not just coming to church. So a a large part of our lives, I mean, if you work an eight-hour day, you know, one-third of your life right there. As Paul says elsewhere, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So, one thing that I think is, comes across in these verses that we've looked at related to slaves and masters is that there is a dignity to honest work, even in what the world may view as uh, menial or low uh, tasks. That's, that's the task that the slaves had. Any work can have great value when done for Christ and the good of others. So work is worship. If you just want to remember one simple phrase, work is worship or should be for the Christian. Work is worship. It is the sacred practice of offering up our strength and abilities to serve wherever God's put us with a diligent and grateful heart. That's, that's how we worship God at the workplace, realizing I'm giving my, my time, my talent, uh, my abilities in this situation uh, in a diligent and grateful manner to God. So um, I think that's part of what Paul would want us to glean from these verses. If you have a difficult work environment, 
like an unreasonable boss. Well, there's some verses that relate to that. You should still seek to do a good job, treating your employer with respect, without grumbling and complaining. Now, in our present-day situation, there's usually uh, some opportunity, uh, can be a place for respectful stating of your concerns. A slave probably didn't have that opportunity. But in our present uh, work setting, there's often that opportunity, and it's not wrong to use that. But generally, we should seek to be content in our situation. Paul said that a number of times. Be content in the situation where God finds you. That situation. Realizing that this difficult position may be an opportunity for growth in Christian character. I mean, if God's got you there, there's a reason he's got you there, and part of it is for your own sanctification. But I will say this. If an opportunity for other employment is possible, it's not wrong to pursue a different job. Paul says if you can become free, you know, talking to the slave, he said if you can become free, take advantage of that. You remember that's how he said it in First uh, uh, Corinthians. He says, uh, if you're called as a slave, don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So he's, he's, even in that situation, if it was possible to become free, he said, take advantage of it. And that may be a, there may be a right place in a work situation where, where it's such an unreasonable um, or unholy ad- environment that you would seek uh, different employment. Well, those, I think, are some things that we can glean from that, uh, from these verses. And if, like I say, if there's other things that come to mind, you might want to mention them after the message. Now, uh, what I've done here is just try to take those first two verses related to slavery and apply them today. But I want to go on in this section uh, this morning and uh, go into some other subjects. <clears throat> so let's turn back to First Timothy. And we'll uh, go on from there. But notice right at the end of verse 2, uh, Paul says, Teach and preach these principles. Now, actually, you know, these uh, chapter and verse uh, divisions weren't there in, when, Tim- when Timothy received this letter from Paul. It wasn't divided up into chapters and verses, and I really think this last little phrase on verse 2 would go better with what comes after. Uh, So let's read here on uh, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of deprived mind, of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. 
So um, I think that Paul is pointing out here that what he said in this letter, not just not just this teaching related to slaves and masters, but all of what he said here uh, is things that Timothy needs to emphasize uh, to the church there in Ephesus. All the subjects concerning church life mentioned so far in the letter is what he's talking about here when he says teach and preach these principles. Actually, he said this before in chapter 4, verse uh, 11. He says, prescribe and teach these things. So he's, he, what he's doing is just saying in this portion, he's saying, okay, I've laid out some of this church life, how the church should function. Teach these things, prescribe these things, uh, preach these things to the people. Why is that so important? Well, it's because some of these people in the, in, at Ephesus were teaching and preaching different doctrines. So Timothy must teach and preach sound doctrines, sound principles. And so he goes on and emphasizes some of the details of the false teaching and what the false teachers would be like. So this is what we want to zero in on here in the remainder of the message. You might remember that Paul began this letter by pointing out that this was a major problem, and that's why Paul left Timothy there at Ephesus. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 2. He says, or verse 3, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So he says, that's why I left you there, to straighten things out. The people were teaching strange doctrines. Here he calls it different doctrines. If anyone, verse 3 of chapter 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine. So he gives us insight into the content of the false teaching and then a little bit later, the character of the false teachers. But first of all, the content of the false teachings. He says it's different. The content is different or strange. Well, different in that it does not agree with the teachings that they had heard from Paul in the past. Different in that it did not agree with sound words, sound teaching. That word sound there... Uh, in verse 3, sound words. Uh, we get our word hygiene from the Greek word that Paul uses here for sound. So what's he saying? He's saying that it's a teaching that will make, sound teaching is teaching that will make believers spiritually healthy. These false teachers will bring spiritual sickness to your soul, unhealthy. Sound words, sound teachings will agree with the words of Christ and the doctrine conforming to godliness and will be healthy and life-giving. Now when he says, if you see in verse 3 again, um, sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, I, don't, I don't think he only means that words that uh, were red-letter words in the New Testament. Couldn't have meant that because they didn't have a New Testament then, and they didn't print 
Christ's sayings in red. Um, what he's saying is, is that uh, he's referring to the teachings of Christ that the apostles were presenting and their other teachings as Christ's authoritative spokesman. If teachings varied from this body of truth, there was something wrong. Something, if, they, if they didn't agree, if they were different, if they were strange in relationship to what Paul was teaching and the other apostles uh, concerning Christ and what Christ has said and done, then you had to turn away from them. Uh, <clears throat> as we've seen, the false teaching at Ephesus most likely involved the combination of Jewish legalism. This is a number of, number of weeks back when we were looking at this. Jewish legalism, which mis misunderstood the purpose of the Old Testament law, and an early form of Gnosticism that had developed out of Greek philosophy. These different doctrines would not bring about true godliness because they were corrupt. They weren't correct doctrine. They were corrupt doctrine. They were strange doctrines. Christ's teachings and the apostles' teachings always had godliness as their goal. Remember Paul's emphasis at the beginning of the letter when he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's godliness, you see. The godliness is always the goal of, of the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, Paul uh, brings up this subject of godliness in the Christian life often in this letter of, to 1 Timothy. We'll just look at a couple examples here. Chapter 2 and verse 2 says that we should pray for kings and all those in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we pray in order that we might live a tranquil and godly, godly life, you see. Godliness is an emphasis. Chapter 4, uh, verse 7, right at the end. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Uh, verse 8, for bodily discipline is only for a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And then verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is that the, the teachings of, of the apostles of Christ and the New Testament had godliness as its goal, always godliness. Healthy, sound doctrine will bring about conformity to Christ which is what godliness is all about. Sound teaching will promote godly faith and godly living, reverence toward God expressed by a morally upright life, which, of course, is a life patterned after the life of Christ. In short, true teaching will make a person desire more holiness and more Christ-likeness. If, if, if you hear teaching and it doesn't direct you in some manner towards more Christ-like life and a more holy life, there's something wrong with that teaching. False teaching will produce ungodliness. 
Here's some good questions to ask ourselves about any teaching that comes our way. Does it make me want to love and serve God and others more? Does it take my interest off my feelings and myself and place them on Christ, making him dearer to me? Does it correspond with the clear teaching of Scripture and make me want to know his word better? Does it humble me and increase my desire for holiness? Does it draw me away from this world's ways and draw me closer to other Christians? You see, that's, that's a direction toward godliness. Sound teaching is not me-centered or man-centered. It's always centered on God and his eternal purpose in Christ. So, perhaps that's enough on this content of false teaching, but what about the character of the false teachers? That's what he goes into next. There's many things uh, concerning the character of false teachers that are brought out in the New Testament, but I will just look at the things, the characteristics that are brought out in verses 4 and 5 here in 1 Timothy. The first thing that Paul points out is that these teachers are conceited. They're puffed up, full of pride. False teachers, real desire. If you could see down in the heart level, you'd see that their real desire is not to exalt Christ, but to exalt themselves. They're not really out to gain followers for Christ. They're out to gain followers for themselves. They present themselves as being knowledgeable teachers when, in fact, Paul says they understand nothing. And that was a direct hit on these Gnostic teachers. Remember that word Gnostic meant knowledge. They were the ones that had all the knowledge. He, Paul says they know nothing of the things that really matter. They're, why is that? Well, pride. Pride blinds them to God's truth. You, can't, you cannot see God's truth if you're full of pride. They're puffed up with false confidence as if they can help other people. They're self-assured when, in fact, Paul says, they're ignorant and they have a morbid interest in controversy and disputes which bring harm to those who hear them. Paul uses a metaphor here, again, related to sickness and health, when he says they have a morbid interest in controversial questions. That's in verse 4. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions. What's he, why does he use that word morbid? Morbid means to be sick. These people have a sick, unwholesome interest in things that are unclear and unimportant. A diseased curiosity about trifles instead of about things that make for sound, healthy teaching. A person sickened with these views of things, one of the things they'll do is make mountains out of molehills. When a person rejects healthy words from God, spiritual sickness will result and they will often major on minors. A friend of mine told me that uh, he was in a restaurant and he saw someone that he thought was praying before he ate. So he went over and tried to talk with him, thought, well, this opportunity to maybe meet a Christian. 
And after a sentence or two, this person that had been praying said, did you know that Adam was 10 feet tall? And uh, my, my friend said, I don't think this is going to go very well. <laughs> God will teach the humble, but the conceited person always thinks he knows enough already so that God leaves him in his proud ignorance. So another another thing that we're talking about here is that uh, these false teachers are unteachable. They already think they know enough. <clears throat> God leaves them in their proud ignorance. In fact, Paul even says they have a depraved mind. That's they don't think right. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, I praise thee, O Father, that, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them unto, unto babes. Now, I don't think he's talking about truism or true intelligence, but he's talking about a proud, a proud type of uh, intelligence, uh, which is actually ignorance. The proud person will often be concerned with novel notions and abstract speculation and miss the great truths upon which godliness is based. So we're just talking about some of the characteristics and character of the, of the false teachers. They will wrangle about words and like and enjoy speculating about unknown things, spending time on subtle intellectual battles about word meanings. These disputes produce no true godliness. They don't further, they don't make a person more holy. They don't make them more Christ-like. <clears throat> One person said, subtle talk does not produce a solid walk. Instead of being excited about the central doctrines and teachings of the Christian faith, they're excited about insignificant, unclear areas and disputed matters. The main truths of Christianity are clear and repeated often in the scriptures. But we must be very careful about striving to know the details and implications of all the difficult, oblique verses in the Bible. And there are difficult. And it doesn't hurt to try to understand them. But don't make those things, don't major on those things. Don't form your, your character around those uh, difficult things. Go with the main things and the plain things. Uh, another area that that applies in is uh, trying to learn all the ins and outs of end time prophetic passages. That's a mistake. People who get too involved in these things often glory in their knowledge and their precise systems instead of their relationship with Christ. And that kind of attitude usually ends up being quite divisive and schismatic. They just separate off because of this little thing that they uh, uh, say they understand that nobody else understands, this, this uh, difficult, uh, unclear teaching that they have the insight on. In general, I think the principle is this. We should seek for unity in essential truths, 
liberty in non-essentials, and charity in all. Charity in all things. Another way of saying this is that we should preach and proclaim the clear truths, discuss the peripheral in love, and be gracious with all people. But being argumentative over secondary and minor issues only brings division and disputes, and that you'll find that as a characteristic of a false teacher. And this is what Paul points out here. As Paul says in the last part of verse 4, their ministry produces envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. If you see that type of a thing being produced in, the, in a person's ministry, you can be sure something's wrong. Where there's envy and strife and abusive language and evil, evil suspicions, constant friction. There'll be a noticeable absence of righteousness, peace, and joy in their lives and the lives of those who follow their teaching. Their ministry will breed suspicions and disharmony and turmoil. <clears throat> Again, James talks about that type of ministry. In uh, his letter, he says this in chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So just a characteristic of uh, what a true ministry gospel ministry produces as opposed to what these false teachers would produce. Disharmony, turmoil, suspicions, abusive language. Since a false teacher promotes, basically promotes themselves rather than Christ, they are very competitive towards others. By that I mean they put down others to build themselves up. There you see a, a, a real negative emphasis in a false teacher, negative towards everybody else. They need to put down others in order to build themselves up and try to dominate people through intimidation rather than shepherding God's people in love. They actually seek to enjoy, seem to enjoy controversy since it puts them in the center of things. As you're reading through this list that Paul gives here, it's, this is a mark, you see. They enjoy that controversy because that puts them kind of center stage. Now, I would say this, that there's a right place for controversy because we must <coughs> contend, contend for the faith and refute those who contradict God's truth. But controversy must never be motivated by self-seeking or pride. I mean, the only if 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 you're not taking a stand truly for the glory of God and the good of others, if there's some self-seeking or selfishness involved, it's a, it's not the right type of controversy. It's not something that's going to please God. Uh, and in fact, we're told when possible we should seek to live at peace with all men. It's not always possible. That should be our desire. 
The last characteristic then of a false teacher is that they commercialize Christianity. You see that in verse 5 where he says, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. You know, a depraved mind that Paul says these false teachers have is going to lead to a depraved life when you have the one the other is going to follow. And so what happens is they view religion, they view Christianity as a means of gain, personal, selfish gain. They're in it for the money or the influence or the fame they can gain. They're supposed that godliness is a means of getting more for themselves, not truly ministering to others. You know, I think it's pretty evident to people that have any spiritual insight that from what we see in the ministry of some of these people that make it really big on television uh, is that uh, it is very possible to get rich off religion. And that's what these false teachers often do. Uh, You can't do it by teaching truth and walking in the light, but you can do it if you have a depraved mind, uh, teaching things that tickle the ears of people and make them willing to give up some of their uh, possessions in order to be part of this group that uh, the false teacher promotes. They peddle the word of God. Paul says in another place, peddling the word of God. They're gain-focused, not God-focused. Selfish, self-centered. Self is at the center of their religion. They commercialize Christianity. Uh, If we could see into the lives of some of the founders of the cults, the way they really were in their heart, you'd find a very evil attitude. They, they have a depraved mind and they're, they're deprived of the truth. Yeah. Uh, you'd find selfishness and greed was their motivation. Let me give you a couple examples. of Amer- uh, These are American cults. We, we have some religions that are distinctly associated with, uh, with the United States because they started up in, in America. First one I'd mention would be Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism. One of the areas, I mean, he has so, there's so many false teachings, so many uh, strange things when you really dig into it uh, that you're amazed that any intelligent person could embrace this religion. But intelligent people do because they have a depraved mind. But just to show how messed up the founder was, altogether he married some 30 or 40 women. He had 30 or 40 wives. Uh, half of them were teenagers or already or were already married. 
See, there's a selfishness. There is a, a self-gratifying attitude down at the heart of the founder of Mormonism. Let me give you another example. The founder of Scientology was a man named L. Ron Hubbard. He was a science fiction writer before he founded his religious movement. In 1949, speaking before the Eastern Science Fiction Association in New Jersey, he said, Writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. If a man really wants to make a million dollars, the best thing would be to start his own religion, which he decided to do soon after he said that. He became, you know, wealthy through this movement of Scientology. Paul's point is that teachers who promote self-seeking gain rather than godliness are not from God. That should be very, that's very simple. If you're promoting any kind of self-seeking gain rather than godliness, it's not from God. So the character of false teachers includes such things as being conceited, subtle, argumentative, unsound in doctrine, majoring on minors, um, minors, controversial question, majoring on that t type of thing. They're unteachable, they're divisive, and they're greedy. They view religion as a means of gain. <clears throat> well, to bring this to a close then, let me just say that it's easy to point fingers at extreme examples like these of Joseph Smith and this L. Ron Hubbard. But we all should ask ourselves some questions also. Am I really seeking to serve God and others, or do I secretly want to be served? Is my life directed toward daily application of the basic truths of Christianity, or am I unsatisfied with these things and seeking some new twist on truth to excite me? Does the teaching that I embrace produce a godliness with contentment, or is it a form of godliness that seeks personal gain? Well, that's uh, where we end off in verse 5, supposing that godliness is a means of gain. But Paul goes on and says, yeah, there is a gain that comes from godliness, and he t talks about it in verses 6 through 10. This is where we want to take up next time. He'll deal with the subject of godliness, contentment, and money. So that's where Lord willing will pick up this uh, study in First Timothy. So I'll close there, but I, I uh, do want to open it up for questions or comments. Remember we were talking about at the beginning of the message, the area of employer and employees. Was there anything else that came to mind to anyone uh, as we look through those verses related to masters and slaves?